<clears throat> okay, great souls. Does anybody have a question that needs to be answered before we start? I found some words uh, that Master wrote to Rajasi when uh, Master was in India and he was writing a lot of letters to Rajasi. He wrote to him about, uh, he was urging him, Master was urging Rajasi that once he was in this state of cosmic consciousness to keep on pushing and keep on exploring and keep on trying for different and other kinds of experiences because there was a a limitless potential. And I just found that interesting because this whole section that we've been doing in this book is all about what happens after you get into that very high state of consciousness. And we've all been going through that process of realizing that what we thought was actually the sort of final goal is really just the doorway into the next dimension. And that it was specifically, Master was urging Rajasi not to be content with just whatever experiences he was having, but always be seeking to have more and more interesting ones. And then I remembered um, the phrase, ever new joy, which if that is the state of consciousness you're in, therefore there would be many different realities. And one suspects because... Rajasi went into a state of complete liberation that all that we're reading about here right now about going through your past lives and working all of that out because he, he meditated you know, many, many, many hours and hours and for days on end when he would go visit Master and so whatever last little bit of I don't know how, I, again, and beyond myself but it was just realizing it was interesting that Master wrote to him in just that way so I wanted to, to share that with you all. Okay. So now we are on Sutra 3.16. For those of you who just came in, we're at, toward the end of the book, and we are in the section in which we are talking about things that I don't know that much about. So we've been having a good time trying to figure out how to relate it to our present world because we're up to the cosmic consciousness section, and I think it goes on for a lot more pages. 3.16, by Samyama, this is the word we were working with before, which means attunement with or absorption in, in on the three basic kinds of change, birth, life, and death, comes knowledge of the past and the future. From absorption and attunement with the three basic kinds of change, birth, life, and death, comes knowledge of the past and the future. These universal changes, because the commentaries are short, I'm just going to read them. These universal changes are but waves on the surface of the ocean. By absorption in the changelessness beneath these three changes, one develops the ability to know their underlying abiding reality. Because we are involved so closely in these changes, we see life from day to day and from moment to moment. But when we realize that the soul is never born never really lives on earth, and never dies, absorption from a spiritual level in the underlying changelessness of all that lives makes it possible for one to see the vast symphony of which this little measure, our present life, is quickly over. (laughs) Very interesting. Master made the comment that even when they make a biography of a very famous person, it's usually not more than 90 minutes long. And I think I've shared with you before that Haridas took that very much to light in his extremely clever way. Haridas is a, for those of you who don't know, is a, a great devotee, a Nananda devotee who presently lives in uh, Bangalore. 
American but lives in Bangalore with his wife. Haridas always had, always had very light-hearted ways of dealing with things. Whenever Haridas would be in a difficult position or period of his life, he would say, eh, in the movie, a couple of scenes, you know, two or three minutes at the most. <laughs> you know, and he would sort of use that as a way of uh, giving him perspective in a light-hearted manner. When they make the movie of my life, this might not even make it into the 90 minutes, he would say, even though in my present reality it looms really large. And this is the um, complexity of being a spiritual person, living, being a spiritually aware person, um, living through all of the experiences and being, being just wrapped up in the world as it is. And this is where he says, by becoming very conscious of the three basic kinds of changes, birth, life, and death, then you begin to be able to step out of, it says past and future, you begin to be able to step out of the present moment is what we're looking for. I've quoted to you, but I've always found it interesting. I don't know if it was the Dalai Lama or just some other Buddhist, but when he was asked about reincarnation, he made such the interesting comment. He says, you see it as a series of unrelated events. You have this life, then you have the next life, then you have the next. He said, I see it as one continuous flow of energy. Because we don't ever cease to exist and we don't ever actually lose the awareness of ourselves, even though we may go to sleep if we're not, if you're not really wide awake um, in non-physical ways. When you go to the astral world between physical incarnations, you mostly, as Master said, live in kind of a gray dream. You just rest. You get a break. And you don't really wake up again until you have a physical body. Wake up in the sense of sort of know where you are and begin to notice. Spiritual people, people who have practiced being aware on more subtle levels, um, can go into the astral world and be conscious of the astral world and experience that vibratory realm and enjoy it and learn and have conscious experiences. They don't just sort of hang out in a, in a mist until we have a body again. Then we have a body and we carry that on in the same way. So this is, again, what, what he's advising us here is that if we're in a physical body and we're, we're trying to eventually attain spiritual freedom, and we've had this conversation, we had it last week, whether or not we should make plans as if we're going to reincarnate again, or whether we should be so determined that we're not going to reincarnate again that anything that has to do with that thought is anathema to us. We have different points of view on that. My own is, I think I'd rather prepare for the possibility I remember when my, I was just this very small child meeting, seeing my grandfather, who was a uh, practicing Jew, and he was doing all the Jewish rituals and so on. And I mean, I asked him the most obvious question, do you really believe all this, Grandpa? <laughs> he was a businessman. He said, well, if I'm wrong, I won't know it, and if I'm right, I'll be glad I did, <laughs> which is a really awful reason to be a spiritual person, but nonetheless, <laughs> I always remembered it. I think I remembered it because it was such a silly answer in a real sense, but that's how people you know, sort of relate to this. But from my point of view, my expectation is that I will have to live in another body, that my karma is not done, and therefore I, I think about it. So this particular one, being, from, you know, being absorbed and conscious of this birth, life, and death process, it's also, from a very practical point of view, even if we're not going to transcend it completely, it's certainly going to help us to transcend it. I mean, think about it. It's because birth and life and death are not 
just discrete events. It's not like birth is only the physical body and death is only the end of the physical body. We are living all the time through many different experiences, especially in the times that we live in now because the times are so complicated and there are so many options available to us and the forms of things are so, well, both fluid and disintegrating, both. So that whereas if you'd been born into an agrarian society and you were working on a farm, you would probably inherit that farm and you would never leave it. You'd, be, you'd die in the same cottage that you were born in and you would carry out your work just day after day. Whereas the world that we live in now, we literally live all over the world. We're in touch with many different realities. We shift everything about our lives many different times. And so whether or not we're always thinking about how everything is changing or whether we're always feeling that flow underneath it um, makes a huge difference in how we experience things. Um, the more, obviously, the more we concentrate on the, the unifying reality behind everything, also the more powerful we are. Because we, we, we can then carry forth this kind of continuous awareness that isn't... Um, uh, that doesn't have to be reinvented every time there's a, a small shift in consciousness. I heard Swamiji say something in a talk this evening that I'd never actually considered before. He was talking about um, karma and mass karma and so on. He just made a reference to animals, and that's the point that I was thinking of. He said it's not only that animals, which I've mentioned many times in different contexts, don't have ego awareness. They can't objectify their own situation and then um, make concrete plans you know, beyond a certain um, s- simple reasoning. But he even went so far as to say animals don't have that strong a consciousness and therefore their evolution is just sort of with the mass. And I never actually considered that word strong because when you think about um, the way animals behave, I mean, yes, they have distinct personalities, and if you get involved with animals, and some are much more advanced than others. Um, there's, I saw just some little snippet of film of that, um, whoever the gorilla is that knows how to do all the sign language and can actually really converse and talk to people about what the, what the gorilla is feeling and can respond to your feelings. I mean, the only explanation for that is that some poor human just got thrown back, you know, to being a gorilla at that particular time. It's not... It's not like all gorillas would have that same capacity or the karma to be caught like that. But the point is, if I can come back to this, um, just a minute. Um, But I was thinking about what strong consciousness is. And strong consciousness is willpower and determination and, you know, being able to set a goal for yourself and being able to really follow that goal and you know, uh, prepare yourself over a long period of time and then follow through and then recover from setbacks. I mean, all of those qualities are the qualities that when when you say that someone is a strong person or has a strong force or has, you know, something in them. And animals, you know, the the dog, every time the dog goes out for a walk, he's just as excited to be going around the same block, you know? (laughs) And he's just wildly running from point to point. I mean, it has its charm. And it even has its lesson for us. But you're not really looking at some powerful determined force that is is going to, you know, make its mark on the world except to just pee around the block, you know. 
It does make its mark, but not a mark that lasts, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying? Whereas when we're talking here about even you know that capacity, we're talking about a very advanced capacity. Samyama is a very advanced um, ability, which we're, we're trying to have, but absorption in or attuned with. That we, we try to always just keep in some part of our awareness just this 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 um, uh, living on on multiple levels, and that's what that's what the, the is saying here that there's this the changeless level, and then there's all these things that go up and down i I've always found the contemplation of death um, to me has always been a very uh, expansive idea without in any way making me i don't feel morbid at all about it i just I, I, I'm interested in the fact that eventually this consciousness that I'm so accustomed to will continue, but not in this body. And when I've been with people when they've died, it's so fascinating just to sort of watch the consciousness that it has animated the body just go away. It just, it just, it just pulls out and, and goes somewhere else. And unless one has psychic sight, which I don't have, you can't follow it. I mean, many people can follow it. Some people can follow it. I can't follow it, but it's gone. It's just gone on somewhere. And, and that will be us. That's the part that I always find so fascinating. Every time I've sat with someone who's dying, I imagine, wow, someday somebody will be sitting here and I'll be the one. And everybody will be watching me. Just finishes this out. And I, those thoughts to me are very um, helpful because it just kind of keeps us moving again and always thinking that there's another reality happening here. And we can't, we can't be more advanced than we are. You know? So the human element really comes in there a lot of the time. But we can always be pushing in the direction that we're trying to go. Any uh, questions or thoughts on that? Yes, Chandra, where's the microphone? You were talking about looking at things on different levels and seeing the, the underlying unity. Would it be possible for you to give like a specific example or how you would think about something? Um, I can't even think of an example like well, I often, when I just see people, I... Um, did I tell you what I read about uh, Pope Francis? Did I mention that? I, uh, somebody gave me a book about Pope Francis. I, must have, I said this somewhere. But anyway, um, and he was asked... I didn't say this last week. Okay, I'll go on. He was asked... It was just it was a very informal book of interviews... And, and the reporter asked him, what would you do if someone was suffering? And he said, um, I think this was all done before he was Pope. No, he was Pope at this point. Um, he said, well, depending on my relationship with him, because he has been a parish priest for much of his life, my relationship, he said, if it were, if it were appropriate, I would hold their hand. And then he said, essentially, wouldn't, I can't remember even what he said after that, but the point, here's the point that, of the whole thing. He said, um, all sorrow and all suffering takes place in absolute solitude. It was just a very interesting thought to me. 
He actually said all joy takes place in solitude also. But, but what he means is that we're always inside our own consciousness. And if a, if a person is having either physical or mental, emotional pain, spiritual pain, I mean, where does that pain take place? It takes place in the, in the remote solitude of your own self. Anybody who's ever been through any traumatic experience, and the same, the same is true for joy. If you feel very joyful and elated in yourself, you know, it's still, where are you feeling it? It's more dramatic, I think, in pain. If, if you've suffered, and you know, people suffer, we all suffer for all kinds of things. And you're just, um, you're just there all by yourself. And the question you asked, which is, it seems to be the opposite. I'm answering the opposite, but I'm not. I always try to, when I look at people, to realize that whatever I have ever touched and experienced, they have too. Everybody has that inner reality that they're always living. And just as dynamic and uh, all-absorbing as my own inner reality is, so is everybody else's to them. And we're not really so different one from another, no matter how, how varied and extreme our different experiences can be. When it all comes down to it, we're, we're all living inside our own vibrations and um, sometimes it's challenging, sometimes it's not, but we're all just trying to make our the same way. Swamiji once when we were in Disneyland, used to like to go to Disneyland. Disneyland used to be very innocent. Um, he, when Walt Disney was alive, he created an alternative reality and everybody entered into it. Now, for some reason, they think it's a good idea to bring the modern world into Disneyland. It's just not nearly as the same. Uh, but uh, for many years, in the 70s and the 80s I'm talking about, so when we used to go there whenever we go to Southern California, which was, you know, every so often. And we were in Disneyland uh, about, I think we'd gone down to Los Angeles to be part of some New Age fair of some sort. And there was about uh, 12 or 13 of us. There was a big crowd. And, uh, and then we took a day and we went to Disneyland. And Swamiji was very strong then. He knew the place really well, and he was always running out ahead of us. I told this story in my book. He, he moved really fast, and he was always ahead of us. And we were actually holding hands so we wouldn't lose each other, you know, sort of running after him like little goslings. And he would just be off to the next, and we'd all be running. And we decided to... Uh, he really liked the electric parade. I don't know if they still do that there, where they're ca- the characters, and they're all lit up, and it's really pretty... So we went to the sidewalk um, where it was going to come and we were going to uh, just sort of hold our place. And Swamiji just went into this bob, this spiritual state, and he looked out at all those hundreds, even thousands of people and he said, imagine Master's consciousness. He said he didn't merely love all these people, he was all these people. He is all these people meaning that that solitude is breached by the master because his consciousness being omnipresent, it's not that he invades people's privacy, but he, he simply sees, he, there's no differentiation. His, he's not identified with his one body, so he just sees the waves of creation moving in everyone. Imagine Swami just said, just not merely loving, but being all these people. You know, you're looking at the Japanese families pushing their babies, and I mean, it was... Disneyland, it was quite a moment. It was a very, and, and then all of us, 
The whole crowd of us just went with Swami to some really elevated place, and we literally just sat down on the sidewalk and started meditating. There were so many of us, you know, we made a big square like that, and we meditated for half an hour or so. We didn't wake up until, we didn't come out until the parade was right in front of us, and we sort of looked up, and all these people are standing around us. I don't know what they thought, but we were, we were too far gone to care. <laughs> then we all stood up and, you know, cheered Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and the whole thing. But I, I often think about that when I'm just in a crowd. Imagine not merely loving these people, which is enough of a challenge. I mean, not loving personally because you can't, but just feeling that um, interconnectedness. But actually, what if your consciousness, what would it be like to have your consciousness actually be as much in someone else's reality as it is in your own? By some yama on various things, one goes there. Forgive my voice. I've been having this for the last few days. It just comes and goes like this. So it's on its way out, but it'll come back. Yes. Like, uh-huh. and uh, it sort of reminds me of something we were talking about with a group of people this morning, um, where um, just before one becomes free, uh, one feels an intense feeling of loneliness. Yeah, that's what I and said at service on Sunday. Loneliness, but in, in truth, it's because we're all we're, suddenly we're coming to terms with the fact that. There's only one. Right. And so uh, there's a really intimate relationship between what a master would experience and that concept. Yeah. I mean, and then it turns to bliss. Master said, Swami said. Yes, behind you. You have to speak into the microphone because it doesn't go on the recording otherwise. So thank you. Um, I think I heard you say a state of ever new joy. Uh huh. Will you speak a little more about that, please? Um, the, in the, there aren't a lot of good words in English to describe really elevated states of consciousness, and there's simply no words at all to describe God except the word God, which doesn't actually have any specific meaning, which is why many people are atheists, because they ascribe to that word a meaning they don't like, and then they reject it. Um, from the Indian side, from the uh, Sanatan Dharma, which is the tradition of India, high states of consciousness are described in terms of what the experience is like, because an experience is quite different than a dogma. So the ideal word in our context for the divine, for the infinite, for the freedom we're talking about is called Satchitananda, which means ever-existing, which means immortal, death doesn't touch it, ever conscious, because as Swami said, what's the point of existing if we're not aware of our own existence? And then ever new joy, ever existing, ever conscious, ever new joy. So that is the the end point, or the fulfilling point of all of our, all of our many incarnations of effort to find... uh, a way of living that fulfills us, that endures, and that's how we we gradually kind of get herded by our experiences down the path of self-realization, and the fulfillment of that is Satchitananda. And ever new is, Master actually threw that in, because if if this is eternally fulfilling, then it can't be boring. (laughs) It has to somehow constantly renew itself. 
<laughs> okay. Anyone else? Anything else? All right, we will move up along then. Number 317. The second one to see. Um, Swamiji, one of the first aphorisms of Swami Kriyananda that I remember from a small book that he'd published was, uh, let's see, how did it go? Most people resist change. Change is the only certainty in life. That's why most people are unhappy. (laughs) I've often thought of that just many times, many times since. 317. By the practice of samyama. See, also, it's interesting because these are all the post-samadhi aphorisms. So now we are absorbed in all these different dimensions. This must have been what Master was speaking to Rajasi about. You know, one goes into an expanded state of awareness but then can direct one's energy apparently in all these different directions. And by doing so, one resolves karma, becomes wise in so many different ways. I don't know. I wish I did, but I don't. 317. By the practice of samyama on a word, its significance and the feelings awakened by these two, one comes to understand the inner meaning of any word. Um, Thoughts have a more universal influence than most of us realize. And then Swami talks about being in different places where different languages are spoken and how different it affects him. Another example of that reality is another example of the reality of people's thoughts. Years ago when he lived in San Francisco, he had a very quiet apartment that was exactly the same day or night. But at night it was much quieter (laughs) because everybody was asleep and so he wasn't dealing with all of those everybody's restless thoughts at the same time. Um, I was hearing, I think Swami talked today in a different talk, just talking about the fact that thoughts are, thoughts are real. That, I mean, thoughts are things. It's not like they're just nothing and they go away. It's, and by, by the practice of samyama on a word, its significance and the feelings awakened, one comes to understand the inner meaning of any word. I think Swami then takes it to our thoughts and talks about the power of our own thoughts. You know, it's, Swamiji was talking once about group meditation and he was pointing out that people sit in a meditation even with other people and rarely do they embrace a responsibility for being with everyone. Each person meditates on their own and imagines if I'm restless or if I have negative thoughts or um, whatever it is that I'm doing, that that's just my own in my own solitude. And I guess um, the Pope's, Francis's comment about it all takes place in solitude is not entirely the truth when you start thinking of it from another level. Because on another level, whatever a vibration we're putting out, that vibration is melding with others. The scientists these days, I saw some speaker who's very popular these days, um, it's interesting that I went to his program. I wonder why. But he was uh, East-West sponsored him at the Unity Church. And he put up these photographs. And the photographs were essentially not just of people, but of people and their energy fields. And so he would show you a group of people. And then he would show you the same photograph. But it would be the whole energy field. And, it was, and you could see that people were always overlapping. And that whereas we have that we think we have this discrete reality, which is just our physical body, where we have these 
the separation and this distance and this inability to merge. In fact, what's animating these physical bodies is this vibration of energy. And that vibration, this vibration of energy is manifesting as thought. And that thought is, is having a constant effect on everyone around us. I mean, a depressed person can spoil a whole party. <laughs> and, in, I re, and I remember once um, we had a little disagreement between two women in the community who did not have very positive karma with each other. And one of them was very critical in her mind of the other. And so one was in the kitchen and the other came in and, and there was an exchange like, good morning, or something like that. And then the one who was, was the recipient of the critical thoughts became quite irate <laughs> at how the other one had treated her. And it, it just kind of escalated um, into something that I even got called into. And the one with all the negative thoughts kept asserting her innocence. <laughs> she kept asserting that she'd done nothing and that so-and-so had just reacted. And I finally got her to um, admit that the mere sight of that woman unleashed in her mind a whole host of criticism. I said, do you really think that, you know, that it wasn't just as clear as if you'd said it in plain English? A lot of times with people, sometimes wrongly, sometimes we're only seeing the projection of our thoughts, but a lot of times we actually are receiving because people think that they have that freedom inside yourself. But you don't really. Because you're always making the universe around you by whatever it is that you're projecting from yourself. Now, I don't, I don't go so far as to say that we actually create our own reality. But you are um, perpetuating your own karma and you're not making it better. <laughs> if the flow of energy coming out of your own mind is going in a direction that you wish you weren't going. And so we're, we're, I mean, I don't, I can't really comment too much. I'm interested that Swami took it right into thought. But we become absorbed in the meaning and the feeling behind whatever we're articulating inside ourselves. And we uh, begin to understand, you know, what those vibrations mean. And so he, he's tr- trying to tell us that there's a, a great deal going on that we don't know. You know, sometimes I... Um, what do I want to say? There's a lot for us to do. Sometimes I'm really, really grateful for a guru because otherwise, how would you sort all this out? You know, it's, it's just always the master. I, I read this morning something Swami had written about. We'd, uh, those, not all of you come every time, but on Sunday mornings when we do our purification service and the devotee asks for the grace of God to help them, the response from the light bearer, the ritualized response is, Open your heart to me, the Master says, and I will enter and take charge of your life. Well, I've been saying that and listening to it for 25 or almost 30 years. And I've tended to think take charge of my life was a kind of whoopee, here I am kind of energy. Just like, okay, you're in charge, that's it for me. But I read this little thing that Swami said. When he takes charge of your life, he takes responsibility for for he's committed to guiding you out of error. And guiding you out of error is a whole lot more about how we're going to work with that influence, isn't it? It isn't just a question of having 
um, surrendered responsibility. It's that now he's going to be um, vibrating and projecting, literally projecting thoughts onto us. I was reading uh, somewhere this whole explanation of uh, Master said that in the Second World War, when Hitler was really um, extremely powerful, and it really did not look like anybody was going to be able to stop him. I'm not a, a history buff, but this is what I understand. He suddenly opened the war on two fronts. He became persuaded that he was invincible and did something which was militarily foolish and started fighting in Russia as well as in Europe, as I understand. And as a consequence, he couldn't maintain it. And his forces were then able to be defeated. That's just, that's history. Yogananda said that the, the masters, and there was some discussion recently as to whether master included himself as one of the masters or not, the masters put the thought into Hitler's mind because the, the wars that, when you see something happening on this plane, it's also happening on higher planes too. It's more like it's happening on higher planes. Right now they say there's a huge, uh, the, the devas and the ashuras, the gods and the demons are, are fighting in the astral worlds and that's part of what's going on here. But uh, because Hitler was just so evil, but so powerful, he just wasn't being able to, nobody was able to stop him. Okay, that's, that's, you've heard that before, but here was the part that was interesting. The masters could not impose on Hitler because he had his own free will, but they could work within his own karma. And his vulnerable point was his egotism. And the more you know, powerful he got, the more exaggerated his sense of his own power got. And so they could uh, insinuate themselves into his consciousness because he was vulnerable to that uh, mistake. And so the, the forces of light were pushing against the force of darkness by finding the weakness in the, in the prince of darkness at that point and pushing him in that direction. Now that's a negative example, but the positive is also true, that the masters are guiding us, but they have to work within our own karma. They can't. We're not able to just sit there and have them do the whole story they have to guide us out of the error of our ways into a better way of being. And they have to work within what we will understand, what we will be receptive to, what, what, what will provoke in us the right response and the right understanding. It's just fascinating when you think about it and fascinating to realize how we have to just be so conscious and careful at all times. You know, what is really moving me? And they, and they can only come in, and they will come in. I mean, they'll, they'll inspire you to do that, which, you know, you will do. They can't inspire a poet to suddenly become a rocket scientist or a rocket scientist to become a ballet dancer, you know, or a woman who desperately wants to have children and, you know, have, raise a family to suddenly become a nun. You know, it, it has to be, the lessons have to be learned through the path that um, we're walking and the way we're leaning. God-inspired, our own, but God-inspired and God-guided will. Does that make sense? Yes, Chandra? When I, when I come to the purification ceremony, um, 
I guess maybe 25% of the time, I don't know what I want to ask. And so I just, I don't know. I just hope that they know what, <laughs> what, 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 what I'm Well, here, I mean, here's an all-purpose request, is you ask for attunement. Attunement, okay. Because if you're attuned, then everything else follows. You don't have to say anything else after that. That's a good one. <laughs> now I understand why it's... See, go ahead. It's important to, to ask for something, if, if you can, because then they can help you with... Yeah, but it, it's better, the more, the more central the request, uh, the more effective it is. Because if you ask, you know, make me pregnant, give me a husband, pay the mortgage, um, those are nice, and that if that's your karma, then you, you're going there. But if you ask, make me in tune with your will, then everything will follow. That, you know, that, so that's just... <laughs> Glad of that. <laughs> um, there's another, uh, some of you heard me say this earlier, but uh, I've been, uh, I'm, I'm doing the groundwork to write a, a book about, a more another book about Swami and about Ananda and some of the years that we had together. And so I've been reviewing lots of files. So I just keep finding these little jewels buried. So you're going to be hearing me doing this a lot. Just say, oh, guess what I just read? Well, this was one of them where he, he talked about willpower. It was, very, it was very truncated and also I just, it was a note of mine. Willpower, um, your will, um, is the capacity to discriminate among different states of consciousness. Now, the way I understood that, and I know that's why I wrote it down in the first place, is we tend to think of our willpower as we're going to use our willpower to get up early and meditate we're going to use our willpower to follow this right diet. We're going to use our willpower not to be impatient when something goes wrong with the sound system and the recording system in the middle of my class. You know, just like <laughs> all the very specifics that we're, we're trying to work with. But if you take your willpower and use it at the origin point, which is to discriminate among different states of consciousness and to attach yourself to the right state of consciousness, then you don't have to worry about anything else. And that's really what the best use of willpower is, just to find, to put yourself um, in the attitude of, uh, in the right attitude of attunement. And then when you're attuned, you'll just, everything else, you'll know what to do. Is that, I mean, I'm going to quote, talk about Haridas again here because he's thousands of miles away and can't stop me. Um, he lived with us in this, in, in Roma, lived in our community for a period of time. And Haridas had a, a somewhat peculiar way sometimes of participating in meetings, that I, I, he was too much of a great soul for him to actually just be being random. And it took me a little while to figure out what he would do. Every so often, he would just kind of take possession of the meeting, and he would uh, chatter away, ramble on about this or that for a while, and then, and then after a while, he would relinquish it, the control of the meeting, back to everybody else. And it was not a linear sort of thing. I mean, I sometimes take control of a meeting because I, I just have something I want to say and I need to explain it and I just put it out like that. But that was not what Haridas did. But I finally began to sense that whenever Haridas would feel that the vibration of the meeting was straying a little bit, sometimes it becoming a little critical or a little discouraged or 
not so creative or whatever, he would just take possession of it and then with his wonderful um, attunement and beautiful nature, he would just kind of retune it. And then when he felt it was all retuned, he would let it go on where it was supposed to go. You see? Because he was using his will. The only thing he was watching was consciousness. Not the project, not the facts, not the this, but he was only watching the consciousness. That's why Swamiji says he never allowed anything in his life to disturb his peace. He just, I mean, I, I watched him a lot. It was actually very interesting. He was, very, he was just always... Um, he, he, he was just always centered. That's the only way you can say it. Even if, you know, a great deal of work had to be done or we were late for some place, he, he never allowed himself to become in any way agitated or rattled. He just, he just held the vibration. If we needed to, you know, gather everything up and go, it wasn't that he didn't have, have force. He was by no means lackadaisical. But, you, but when you, no matter what else was going on around him, when you looked at him, he was always standing in the same vibration. In fact, Rambakta, um, this, never, this didn't get into my book, but I wish it had. For various reasons, it didn't get in. But he, he um, was a photographer. Rambakta has been with Ananda for almost as long as I have, maybe as long as I have, decades. And in the early years... For many years, he, he was a professional photographer before he came, so he was always taking pictures of Swami, and he often had a camera in his hands with a, a big zoom on it, so he could be quite at a distance, and he could still look right at Swami and see him very, very clearly. And he realized after, you know, many years, actually, of doing this, that Swami always had the same look in his eyes. And, and, and he was looking really closely at his eyes, that they, they were always, no matter what, whether there was a huge crowd around him, whether he was standing by himself, whether there was a lot of tumult, whether things were peaceful, Swami's, uh, his, his gaze was just the same. And that's, that's what I experienced also. I mean, he, he had many um, ways of expressing himself. So some people, when you think about that, what people think about is, yes, there is no reason to be agitated merely because we're going to miss the plane and all the events will be, we won't be able to be there. My passport has been stolen or my money is lost. No reason to be agitated. I don't mean that kind of energy. I mean an energy that was fully participating, utterly engaged, humorous, dynamic, creative, forceful. But inwardly the consciousness was always held. And that's, that's what our willpower is for. Anyway, so that's the same question as, what do I pray for? Pray for attunement, because when you have attunement, you have everything. Master says in uh, one of those chapters somewhere, maybe it's one of the Sunday readings, um, so-and-so fell from the path, but it didn't have to happen if he'd stayed in tune. And in another place, Master said, you know, so-and-so doesn't meditate very well, but they're progressing through attunement. Swamiji said, well, there was one woman in Mount Washington, he said, who never meditated more than a half hour at a stretch. But she was very attuned to Master, and she was just moving forward because by that attunement, because he's taken responsibility for our life, and he's always there projecting thoughts, literally. He's projecting thoughts, and he's projecting vibrations, and we're, we are, you know, we are nothing but vibration. We are only 
This is very important to realize. We are only what we have tuned into. Because we're no fixed thing. If I, right now, if I became extremely angry, I would be angry. If I became very joyful, I would be joyful. If I became very mean and inconsiderate, I'd be mean and inconsiderate. If I became very compassionate and kind, I'd be compassionate and kind. The only difference between a saint and the worst man on the, or woman on the planet is how they behave. <laughs> Isn't that adorable? Think about it. But it's true. It's just how they behave. Like it's, we've all, we're all carrying the same body around. If somebody goes around and takes guns and murders everybody, that's like kind of not such a good person. If it's Mother Teresa and is picking all the dead and dying up from the street and giving them dignity in their last hours, then you become a saint. But the difference is only how, what you're doing. And if a terrible person shifts, then they suddenly become a good person. And if a good person, by some horrible karma, shifts, then they become a bad person. We are nothing but what we have attuned ourselves to and then have it come through us. And it's, it's very interesting when you have moods, or, or, or um, well, moods is actually the right word for it, you know, when difficult things happen and you become sad and depressed, and then you're not. <laughs> and it's so odd. It's like yesterday I was like this and today I'm like this. What's the difference? I'm just carrying the same body and often the same circumstances even, but just it shifts and it shifts and it shifts because of what we tune into. And so appreciate the masters are constantly projecting to us how to come out of error and come into wisdom and into freedom. And at every juncture, you know, we are either hearing that and moving with that, or we're not. And when we don't, we get to suffer. <laughs> we either get to suffer now, we get to suffer now, but now later. <laughs> but uh, is it worth it? Attunement's everything. Yeah, I'll just take a break. If there's any comments or questions, we'll take them afterwards. Okay. Do we have any comments or questions on anything we were doing before? Yes, pass the microphone back, please. What is your name? Marna. Marna? Hello. Okay. Um, I heard you say something. You, you read one of the lines and said, that must be why most people are unhappy. Uh-huh. And I, and oh, I was, I was quoting something, one of the early aphorisms that I read in 1969 from Swami. Um, most people resist change. Change is the only certainty in life. That is why most people are unhappy. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, it's stuck in my mind, too. <laughs> it's just amazing to me, and I'm going to just say it's amazing to me about me, how, uh, how easily we forget that nothing is permanent. And then we just think it is. And then when it proves not to be, we're just so shocked, really shocked. But I had it all fe- fixed. I had it all figured out. It was going to be this way. What do you mean it's not going to be that way? But didn't you, like, you know, I want it that way. <laughs> is no one listening? <laughs> no, no one is listening. Okay. <laughs> Anything else? So what was I thinking with that? 
It is so funny how often that is just really what's in your mind, isn't it? But I want it. Whether you actually are, are bold enough to say it out loud, it's just still sort of like puzzling. But this is how I want it to be. So I'm like, where is it? <laughs> okay, 318. Ready? By samyama, absorption with or attunement, excuse me, attunement with or absorption in latent impressions in the mind, one comes to know his past lives. This one I have a little more, I'm a little more on it. Deep meditation on one's latent impulses and impressions awakens clear memories of one's own past lives. All of us meet friends, countless numbers of them, from before. Find ourselves in situations reminiscent of situations we held before. Get a sense of deja vu, perhaps, when visiting places we have never seen before in this life. These experiences are by no means out of the ordinary. Samyama on these things, attunement with or absorption in these things, will help to make them dynamic to our consciousness. You know, this is very helpful because, let me just think how this works. See, part of... uh, Part of what binds us is that this is where we started just a few sutras ago, that we're so involved in the moment that we cannot really see where we've been or where we're going. And then the things that happen to us are always a shock. And often uh, uh, we are in a state of confusion. I've told the story before, some of you have heard, when we very first moved into the community that our that we have all lived in now for many of us have lived in for many years. Um, <clears throat> we we leased the property, so we didn't buy it. And when we first started moving in, we just started filling in the vacancies. So we were sharing the property with people who did not necessarily have our vibration or our values. And especially at that time, the place was a bit run down and it was very transient. And many of the people there were people who were just a little bit on the edge. Of, of being able to function successfully in the world. And we were staying at that point in a small one-bedroom apartment, which banks backs right onto the driveway. And at 6 o'clock, maybe it was 7, on a Saturday morning, a man pulls his car up, parks it right outside our bedroom window, opens the hood, and turns on the radio full blast and starts working on his car, which was understandable. It was Saturday morning, but we were all sleeping right there, just literally feet from where he was working. And he was just running the radio like he was the only person on the entire planet. And it was so outrageous, there wasn't even any point in saying, would you turn that bloody thing down? I mean, just, it was, but I, what I was contemplating, always being the philosopher and the minister, I was thinking, this man has just no idea. He has no idea of cause and effect. He can't perceive his effect on anyone else. And what will happen to him is that later in his life, people will be utterly unconscious of his reality and will impose their reality on him, and he'll be both shocked and outraged. There'll be no sense of connecting cause and effect in that. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. When you move through the world without any consideration for others, then you tend to attract exactly that same. I felt like that man hadn't even risen to the level of being inconsiderate, He just didn't know there was anybody there except him. He wanted to work on his car. He wanted the radio. End of story. 
you know, just people sleeping, their realities just completely outside of him. In fact, I heard recently someone was talking about the experiments of introducing meditation into prison. And they were talking about some hardcore prison where a lot of rough men were living and then they started having them, I think, do some yoga postures and meditation. Usually they do mindfulness meditation in such situations because they don't want to... Anyway, this is the most easiest one to introduce. They don't want to get religious. Um, they don't want to bring in the concept of spirit. But just that. And, the, and this man who was, who was in there for murder or something like that, you know, everybody began to... The people who were doing the practice really began to change. They began to take better care of themselves. They began to... There was less violence. Just lots of things. And this man said, until he started meditating and really started trying to be aware of his own reality, he had no idea what he'd done. He just really didn't know what he'd done. I mean, he knew he'd killed someone, but he had no idea what that actually meant. Isn't that interesting? I had a friend, uh, uh, not a friend, but somebody I heard about also, who just, you know, it was years into prison before he finally, where he, until he finally saw his actions as everybody else had seen them. Up until that point, he just thought he'd been mistreated, which isn't that the gripe of every criminal? Just, I'm mistreated. They're either innocent or at least they were got a bum rap, whatever it was. Because we're not um, standing back enough. Now, let me just think where I was with this. Oh, yes. So when I have talked about this before, talking about let's have the image in our mind of a, of a wheel, a bicycle wheel, with all the spokes leading into the center... And the center is the changeless core, the eternal now, if we're talking about time. And the rim of the wheel, we've each followed our little spoke at it, we're living right here at the rim of the wheel. When you're way at the rim of the wheel, you can't see very far, either forward or back. If you think of this as a progression from past, moving like this, you can't see very far. If you start moving toward the center... Even if you've moved just a little bit, then you're able to look back and see a wider perspective of the rim. Isn't that so? And when you can see a wider perspective of the rim, thinking of past and future and present in the middle, then you begin to sort of see how you got to the spot you're on, and you can begin to see what the trajectory is that's going to take you the rest of the way. And that is enormously helpful. Because all of a sudden, for one thing, it begins to give you some capacity to influence. And also, what happens to you then is not such a mystery. Well, of course this happened to me because I was in India one year. Um, We used to lead uh, pilgrimage tours to India. We did it about 12 times. And one of the early trips, we had a, a, a tour leader in Varanasi who was extremely proud. He was a very nice man, and he loved his city, and he loved everything about his city. And at the beginning, we didn't quite have our, the first one or two trips, we didn't quite know exactly what we wanted sometimes, and we also didn't always know how to assert our preferences against what other people thought we ought to be doing. So this man sort of put into our itinerary a stop that we hadn't planned to make which was to a very, very old temple to Divine Mother in the form of Durga. You, remember, you were there, I think. And it, the temple was called, locally called the Monkey Temple. In, in a Hindu country, 
where life is revered, you, you, it's not easy to just go and massacre even um, nuisance, an, nuisance animals. And in Varanasi, there are a lot of monkeys. And you can't poison or kill them, so the monkeys get a lot of what they want. I mean, a friend of ours has a, a, an ashram there, and it's a three-story building with an enclosed courtyard. And they finally literally had to put a cage over the entire courtyard because the monkeys would just go over the rooftops and come down to their little Shiva temple and take all the offerings, and it was just impossible. So the only thing they could do, because they couldn't do anything against the monkeys, they had to just cage themselves in. It worked, except the monkeys can kind of poop through the bars, but that was just something entirely different. Yeah, I mean, you never really win, but at least they couldn't come. That's a whole different story. That was with a different woman, and she was... Uh, I'm going, to, I'm going to leave the Durga temple. I'll come back to it. <laughs> this woman, wonderful lady, but she could never be on time. 35 people on the bus, one person you know, who's 10 minutes late, 35 people are sitting there. So she was always late, and it was really a problem because everybody was just had to sit. So she was late again, and we were sitting at the Shivananda temple, as it were, on this little bench under some big, beautiful tree, and we were having this discussion about you know, what is it with you that you cannot get yourself together and all these people are waiting for you. And you know, there were, people were getting really impatient with her and there was kind of a little bit of a bad vibe happening. And right in the middle of this conversation, this monkey just pooped just all the way down her back like this. And it was like all the karma of all, making all those people wait for so you know many times, had just all focused in so that she was right under the monkey like that. And she was a great girl, and she got it just instantly. <laughs> it was like, we, and she's, she's kind of a naturalist, so it didn't freak her out as much as it would some people to be sitting there like that. And it just was like, well, I guess the karma is zero. <laughs> Everything has gone to zero again. And it, it had, in fact. You know, from that point on, she was able to do it. But it was really like all the forces just combined, and so that's why it happened to her. Now, we're back at the Durga Temple, and... Uh, that Durga temple was it was filled with monkeys, and I was I was newer to India, and I didn't I didn't have quite as much capacity to kind of flow with what was going on there. I tend to stay in my own realities a little too much, and I was not liking it. You know, I was really not liking it, and I was really annoyed with our guide. I was really annoyed with the place. I was really annoyed with the whole country. You know, just it was it was not good, and I was so busy being annoyed that I didn't notice that I had. I, had, I wasn't watching the monkeys. And so I had stepped between uh, you know, a monkey and whatever it was he was trying to get. You have to, you know, you have to move carefully. And somehow or another, um, that monkey was really annoyed with me, and he literally jumped on my back, which is not a small problem because these are not nice monkeys. And I completely unconsciously, because somebody told me this later, I grabbed him. I had much more courage than I thought I would have. I grabbed him. I pulled him off my back, I threw him on the ground, and I said in a very loud voice, get off of me, you filthy thing. (laughs) (laughs) At which point, for reasons I don't know, he sunk his teeth into my skirt. Fortunately, not into my leg, but just into my skirt. And then I just started pulling my skirt, let go of me, let go of me, like this, (laughs) until he just took a bite out of my skirt, and he just ripped a hole and ran away, by which point everybody in the whole temple, which is not that large, was there with me. You know, I was, you know, American woman, 
being killed by monkey in Durga Temple. It was nuts. And I was group leader too, which was even worse. But it was like, it was instant karma. Instant karma is very good karma. Because instant karma is boom, boom, like that. I'm sitting there at this ancient temple to Divine Mother, and I'm going, like this. And Durga just said, no, no, dear. That's not the right attitude. Whoa! Just like that. It was terrific. Absolutely. I got it. I got the lesson instantly. You know, it's just sometimes it's just right like that. And then I, took, I went home and I, I went to Joanne Fabric and they had these decals and I got this big face of a monkey. I sewed it right on that hole. I wore that skirt in India for years. This is my, and it always reminded me, you know, keep your consciousness where it should be, girl. <laughs> so all is well that ends well. But in our lives, now I'm going to come back to the sutra. You know, things happen to us and we don't know why they're happening because we're not just working with thinking bad thoughts about powerful deity, monkey jumps on back, keeping 35 of your friends waiting, monkey poops all over you. Monkeys are really good for this sort of thing. You know, and it's just bing, bing, you get it like that. Often it's like, but I'm so nice, you know. Why did that happen to me? Why can't I find the right person? Why don't I? Why didn't I get the job? Why can't? Why don't my investments work out? You know, why did I get evicted from my apartment? Why did I buy at just the peak of the market and then it crashed? You know, whatever the question is, why are my thighs always too heavy? You know, <laughs> whatever whatever it is, we have this thought in our mind. We don't understand why. Why are things like this? Because we can't see. We're living so much in this moment. We don't see all the forces that came that made it in- inevitable that this would happen. You know, karma is very powerful. But it's, it's not like it's being done to us. It's that we ourselves set it in motion. In uh, Pride and Prejudice, the book by Jane Austen, uh, the movie that I saw, there's this impossible woman who's just so proud and so impossible in the story. And uh, somebody is playing the piano beautifully, and the, and the woman says in her very supercilious way, yes, she said, I could have been an excellent pianist if I had ever learned. <laughs> but that's sort of what we're like. You know, I could have been really successful if I had actually worked or tried. So what in this particular sutra, when it's saying to us, if we really, you know, try to feel, you know, meditate, that's what they're saying on deep meditation, meditate on our impressions and our uh, inclinations. And when things happen to us, pay attention to them, not in a, a, not in a self-absorbed way, um, but just pay attention so that we'll have some sense of, who am I and where, where am I going? And then when we really begin to become more adept at this so that we're not just uh, making things up, but we're actually connecting dots, then, then much which is otherwise inexplicable can become quite um, transparent to us. Of course, this is necessary. I was in a situation once where I was, comp- I was completely innocent. You've got to believe me, completely innocent. <laughs> Um, and, and yet I was falsely accused. And, uh, but it was really interesting to me because I was completely innocent, but I could have done it. 
<laughs> That's what I realized, that it was really in me to have behaved in the way I was being accused of behaving. As it happened, I hadn't done it, but I could have. And I sort of thought, hmm, I must have gotten away with this. Because I could feel the inclination in me. So in some other in- incarnation yesterday, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a huge event in any case, but it was significant. It had, it had some real juice around it. And I, I, there was a lot of force directed at me. And I, I realized, well, yeah, it, it's some other lifetime. I obviously be, did behave in this way, and somehow people feel that in me. And even though the facts are wrong, the truth is right. Because the truth is always right. That's the problem. You know, if, you, if, you, if it's not yours, it wouldn't come to you. And if it comes to you by definition, it's yours, which is often a really tough pill to swallow. So you have to ask yourself, and, and that's the balancing point, is you have to ask yourself in such a way that it doesn't just become overwhelming and, and, and you lose your ability to go forward, but you also have to ask in such a way that you can actually get an answer. Why is this happening to me? You know, why is this happening to me? And then sometimes it's kind of interesting to stand back and think, you know, what, what, kind, of, uh, what kind of karmic energy set in motion would result in this? What would, what would happen? I mean, for me, it's, you know, really simple. If I've dished it out, I get it back. No. Chandra. That that would even apply to moods, uh, because mm. I I. Pardon me. That would even apply to moods. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm beginning to see how they're they're just something out there. Really, no different than I don't know, like being hit by a car or something. The radio. It's a radio station, and and uh, the mind gets tuned into it. Could I ask why is this happening to me? Why am I why am I tuning into this? Well, or, or is there something? There's some reason why. Yeah, there is. Well, Master, actually, I mean, Master says overindulgence in sense pleasures in the past makes you moody. You miss lifetime. And I mean, I think what that is is trying to push the envelope of I want. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to have what I want. You know, I'm going to feel good all the time. And then it inevitably has to slide back to the other. I mean, we're talking about moods of sadness or despair or something like that. So it, you can sort of see that. I'm just, you know, I don't feel, well, I'm going to drink a little bit. I'm going to take some drugs. I'm going to go out and party. I'm going to you know, have lots of men or women in my life. You know, I'm going to listen to all this music which just stimulates me. And this is, I'm going to keep that going like that. And then inevitably, what is the other side of that? Because oh. it never really gives you what you want, and so sooner or later the futility of that um, pulls you down. It's interesting because sometimes people who are moody don't have any traces of that quality in them anymore. I I have to say, I've had to sort of think about this, because a lot of times people I've known who've been really subject to moods are almost like way far away from that side of things, but it may be that they have pulled themselves way far away, but having tried so hard to always be, you know, in the pleasure zone, all of a sudden you just have to go to the other side where you're in the non-pleasure zone. Yeah. This is where I was saying the other day, and you like this. It's also out of the files. Swamiji said that even-mindedness 
which is what's always recommended for the yogi, so you're not always in that swing of pushing, trying, trying to make it always pleasurable, and then becoming exhausted and oversatiated and feeling like that. Even-mindedness is not being dull in the middle. It's just always standing at that point of calm unity and bliss between the pleasures and the pains. Because the pleasures and the pains just come and go. I mean, you know, the big pleasures, death, birth, loss, gain, all of it. But to just, this is just what we're talking about today, that the changelessness, that's what the bliss is, just the changelessness, that I'm always the same. Swami's eyes were always the same, no matter where he was, no matter what was happening. It just swirled around him, you know, difficulties and challenges and successes and failures in his case, and, you know, praise and blame. It was just always swirling around him. But he was just right there in the middle. And moods are to just fall over into the, oh, everything is no good and I'm just so worthless and, you know, everything is so sad. I mean, we all go there. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's easy to say no. So it's amazing to me. I, have been, I was thinking about that just this evening. It's just amazing. You know, a minute ago I felt one way and now I feel this way. I wish I could be more, you know, I'm... I've grown in that respect. I used to be a lot more volatile in all directions, but it's tough because you have all this energy behind you. It wouldn't, it's, it's not, you're not just acting in the present. You have momentum. And that momentum is that you have pushed it far in one direction. So you're standing here, but what's happening is it's swinging back to balance. And it's swinging back to balance because in the past you pushed it really hard that way. I mean, when you see people living these lives, there's some woman who walks around in our neighborhood. Um, she's probably my age, um, which is a, you know, it's not youth anymore. Certain dignified uh, advancement of years. The woman dresses like she's about 16. You've seen her too. She has, you know, bleached blonde hair. And I look at her and I think, what makes her think that's a good idea? But you can see her. She absolutely cannot let go of the idea of being that, you know, sexy, youthful, gorgeous girl that she probably was and is still just gripping it like crazy. So this is an inclination. So, but we all we all have weird and strange inclinations ourselves, and that's what is suggested here. Really, just notice, like, why am I always like that? Everybody has things. I I really like to be right. I really really like to be right, and I like everybody to just stop doing what they're doing and do what I want them to do. <laughs> this is that too much to ask. <laughs> You know, I mean, other people like to let other people do it their way. They enjoy it when everybody gets a turn. I never have. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, it's just the way, you know, we're constituted. You know, I'm sure I've held positions of power and decisiveness. You know, I'm just, I'm, I expect people to do what I say. And interestingly, they don't. <laughs> I can force my will on them, but as a rule, they kind of like to do things their own way. 
yeah, but you know, but I'm not, I've paid attention. It's taken me a while, but I've paid attention. Like, why, why should they listen to me? It's like, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not that dictator anymore. And there was, a, there was one person that I knew who was, she was very interesting. She was very close to, you might say, power, but she was particularly powerless. And she was always around a situation where everybody else had power, but she could never have any power, no matter what. Even when uh, they had good ideas, no one would listen. And it was just self-evidently abuse of power in the past. And well, you know, and so you get close. I think that's where Prince Charles is. You know, Prince Charles is so close to power and has so little. I mean, imagine. I mean, it's very subtle. It's it's it wouldn't be it wouldn't be anything for him just to be a peasant somewhere, because then there would be nothing around him. But to be so close to power and have so little. I mean, it's a very subtle karma. It's much more subtle. When I watched this other person who was always close to power and had none and was always frustrated because they knew they had a lot to offer, but nobody would ever listen to them. It was just the way it was. But what, what would be the karma of having abused power in the past? And again, it would have to be more subtle. It wouldn't just be that you were nowhere near it. It's that you were close, but you didn't have any. And I don't know Prince Charles from a hole in the wall, and I have no idea what the man is like, but I look at his life and I just watch. He's just never going to get a turn. <laughs> you know, he's just going to uh, just cut ribbons and, uh, you know, do fundraising events for his entire life. It's just never going to work out for the guy. Whereas his mother, look at her, she just stepped into it and just holds on, just keeps going, keeps going. <laughs> I don't know her either, but it's just, you just watch these things. You watch other people's lives and then you kind of think, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I could look at myself. Maybe there's a story here about me too. And that's what's promised here. You know, really attune yourself to it and you can find out all kinds of things. It becomes very helpful. Explains relationships, gives you guidance about what you're supposed to do, tells you which way is forward, which is always nice to know. Because sometimes we just expect that we can go forward just by following the same path we're on. And it may occur to us suddenly that maybe reverse is what's in, in order here. Well, any other questions or comments before we call it a night? Okay, great souls. We'll see you next week. So we did. We started at 3.16, and we read through 3.18. And we're going to samyama for a really long time here. We just samyama, not quite to the end of the book. <laughs>